Welcome back to How AI Built This, the podcast dedicated to data and entrepreneurial storytelling. As always, we're brought to you by Catacomb Technology, an independent recruitment company, and Infer, an analytics platform giving analysts uh, machine learning capabilities using SQL. Today on the show, we've got a duo, got Hannah Bradley, CEO and co-founder of Frame, and Liam Fulton, who is the CTO and co-founder. Welcome to the show, you two. Hi, thanks for having us. Hello. Thanks for coming on. I think I was thinking about this earlier, but Liam, I think I've been asking you to come on the show like kind of informally for about two years, just like texting you saying, are you up for it? You say yes, and then we would never do it. <laughs> I always said yes. That's a key thing. No, no, you did always say yes. I'm kind of glad we didn't do it until now, though, because it would have been like at when you were at a different company or whatever. It's now it's, it's a more fun episode now. And we've got Hannah on as well to give us to give more background. Usually we would go into like, what was your education? What was the rules that got you to this point? It's a little bit harder to do that with two people. So why don't we just do a quick, like, set the scene, almost like that awkward 30 second Zoom intro you do on a group call, just to get everyone acquainted. So I mean, Hannah, why don't you start? Okay, yeah, sure. Yeah, I met Liam just about five years ago now. We were both working for the same company. My background was account management, managing beers, wine, spirits across the retailers, Asda, Morrison's, Tesco, that kind of thing. In the final year of working for that company, we were selected by the CEO to get a tech arm of that business off the ground and launch it. I'm a non-technical person. So it was myself, Liam, and two others that got that um, computer vision product off the ground met Liam, fell in love. And from there, we always kind of toyed with the idea of going into business together anyway. Moved in together, both went off into different companies. And then COVID hit and we had a lot of free time on our hands and we thought, well, why the fuck not? It's now or never. This is the time to like do this. We've never had the luxury of just taking this much free time. And that's when Frame was born or Fulton Industries. Uh, and that's, that's where the journey began really. And then Liam, what about your background? So you're the technical brains behind Frame. Yeah, so Hannah usually says on her intro that she's the C of everything except for tech, which makes me just the CTO. But yeah, um, my my background is what feels like it forever ago now. So I did a PhD in sort of particle physics, which I remember none of it. Uh, went through various different uh, data science jobs, building teams it tended to have to be. I, I wasn't looking for that necessarily when I was looking at roles. And people seem to like the sort of outputs that I was delivering when I met Hannah and we did, we, we launched this sort of business within a business, um, a, a data science business within a, a larger business. Uh, we really enjoyed that and we learned quite a lot of lessons from that. Uh, and then like I say, the, the impetus of uh, being at home, being furloughed or part-time furloughed and uh, weekends not really meaning anything through all of 2020 meant that I could just, suddenly I had a lot more capacity uh, and Hannah had a lot of contacts and we just sort of said, let's, let's start doing it right here. No one ever. So yeah, that's, that's where we got to where we are. Other stuff happened, but that's where we started in 2020, I suppose. I'm already going off topic a little bit, but so, I mean, you and I have known each other for ages, Liam, when you were at uh, a well-known price comparison car website, or no, that's not right. A well-known no. used car buying service. Um, people are thinking, people thinking the wrong business now from you. Yeah. Unless you, unless your goal was to make it so anonymous. I'll just tell them the wrong business and no one will figure out. <laughs> I mean, you've got LinkedIn, so people can go and check it out, but I, just, I don't want to give them their time. But yeah, so we met there and then uh, we ended up working together for the, the 
business within a business at DSET that you joined them as kind of head of data. But the tangent I was going off on, because I was just thinking about this, you said about building teams and you built the business within DSET, then you moved on to some other places. You always seem to like, from when I've been speaking to you, had quite a lot of autonomy within data science teams. And a lot of the struggles you see on like LinkedIn and heads of data are like, oh, I just can't get buy-in for the business. They don't get data. You don't really seem to have struggled with that. Is, is there like a secret or is it just, are you able to convey the value better? Yes, I think but definitely in that first role, it, it wasn't by design that I was the sort of first person through the door, but definitely later roles. I'm now actually when we're looking for new business, I think where we try and position ourselves and sort of me and what a technical team could do is that like, if, if businesses are looking for their first data scientist or they've had a de- team of data scientists who haven't delivered very much and they've been for a cycle, you're still working with people at the end of the day and they want to they wanna see things like, will this person get me to where I, I think I need to be? And you can use itself in a job spec or a description that they're very early in this journey. And ha- as much as the technical work is important, helping them understand what's happening is probably more important. So I think I think it just naturally aligns with sort of my skill set to be able to do the technical work, but as much as probably more important than that, if we're being really brutally honest, is the ability to just understand what business owners want, even if most of the time what they want or what they think they want is not quite right, but being able to, to walk them to a to a solution and some value that, that they're happy with in quite a friendly way, I suppose, is probably the biggest value add. And, and we actively do that now. I mean, I can see a, I can see a CV for a head of data science or a head of data, and I can that, that, that business does not have a data scientist at the minute. <laughs> so, And you can tell that from how things are written um, without having to go and do anything else. And I think that's where even now that sweet spot is. It's like, right, I can add value there. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think, to be honest, between you and, and happens to be my boss now, Eric, but you two, every time I spoke to you, like when I was doing the job of data science recruitment, it's like never tried to make things sound complicated, like in a good way. Like obviously all the tech is very complicated, but like the business or me as a recruiter don't really need to know that. Like that's kind of, that's something else. Like it's been able to talk about it. And actually, I remember you told me this ages ago, but I'm sure when you were at We Buy Any Car, when you were saying about picking like low hanging fruit and like just doing something automated, not even learning, no, no machine learning, no data science, just automating something was like a big win for, I think it was a CFO or someone like that. And like I tell that story on the podcast all the time like pick something that will get in front of the right person, even if it's not that interesting. Yeah. Because, uh, you're ultimately, you're, most of the time you're starting a business that is, at the very least, if it's a not-for-profit, needs to survive. But if most businesses are for-profit and you need to make money. So you, you need to very quickly align yourself with that way of thinking, especially when people are coming from academia like I was. It's, it's, a, it's a very different way of thinking. And you need, to, you need to find some value somewhere. Because what we do is hard. Like under, under the hood, what we're doing is very difficult. But telling people that is it's a really rubbish strategy to try and convince them what you're doing is good. What you need to do is build trust so that when people say, can we do this problem? Can we do this mad thing that I've thought of? So that when you go, well, we could do this bit of it because the other bit's hard. They just trust you because you're the expert in what you're doing. But to get to that point, you've got to do stuff. You've got to deliver some value. Yeah. And I, I think as much as there's definitely oversimplification the other way as well, where people, people go, well, actually, the discipline is actually really simple. And if you boil it down to these, as a data scientist, if you do X, 
this will always happen. That's also not really true. Your, your job is to live in one side of your brain with all the complex stuff that's happening, but with the other half, put forward that sort of calm, confident, here's what we're up to, here's what we're doing, and being able to communicate that back. Because there isn't a simple formula for a lot of this stuff. There's, it's a lot of iteration. It's science, science is in the title there, not just because there's a lot of scientists floating around looking for jobs, but because at its core, science is just trial and error, right? It, it, you're, you're doing experiments, you're going, oh, that didn't work, that did work. Um, and that can be quite jarring to some businesses, to be like, what, well, you've done something and it failed. But the key is to not not phrase it like that, your, your research, your development, but your also value. So trying to live in those two worlds is is where you do the job really well. And, and when people focus on one uh, instead of the other, and usually it's the technical side at the expense of um, understanding business problems, that, that's where you see people sort of really struggle. Yeah, just go down a hole for six months of like experimentation and not tell anyone what you're doing and then get surprised when they're pissed off. Yeah. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Well, let's jump into frames. So we talked about it a little bit. For anyone that's not heard of you or kind of what is exactly what you do, Hannah, how do you like, how do you pitch it to a non-technical audience? Yeah, sure. So Frame has two core divisions. So it's the data science consultancy that can be quite broad. We have done quite a few computer vision projects within that. Um, but I know some of the clients that Liam and the team currently work with, it could be all sorts of like optimization and intelligent predictions and things like that. The side I focus on is better images. So better images is our product. It's a portal whereby e-commerce websites can log in, um, connect their Shopify or other platform to, um, and we're analyzing all their product images, um, Products with single single images online will not sell. If you're going to justify buying a £2,000 treadmill and there's one single really poor image of that Peloton, you won't convert it. What Better Images does is like audit your site, give it a score, looks at the lowest performing products against the sales data, creates new and improved better images as per the brand um, for you to upload. Um, so we're looking at the lower performers, giving them a boost, improving their SEO. So we've automated that. Traditionally, people would go back out, take on a really expensive, time-consuming photo shoot. Better Images is about taking those products, running them through our algorithm, and then generating more images. So, for example, a Peloton against a white background could go from just that one single image and it could be a peloton with somebody running on it a peloton in the back of somebody's garage or in their gym and that's just all fully generated through the algorithm at the same time making sure that that seo uh, is improved as well so a lot of people fall into the trap of uploading images onto their website and calling them abc123 and unless you type abc123 into google search that product will not come up so it's about making sure that you're getting all the old text and the file paths right and and just making sure that those products are visible and from there we're seeing between sort of 10 and 50 percent sales uplift so yeah we work across quite a lot of different sectors with better images and homeware sort of gardening, health and fitness, edible things like coffee and chocolates. Um, but that, that's better images. But I think Liam may be more suited to talk in more detail about the consultancy side of things because that's his, that's his baby, that's his side of the business. 
No, that makes a lot of sense. And with the images, like I can see that helping small to medium companies who just maybe don't have a big SEO budget and they don't have a big photography budget, for example. So like if you guys can help them even marginally compete against the so-called big people or like the Google searches, because most people, and I know I do this, like you search for a product on Google and you're probably picking the first 10 maybe that you can see, like when you're scrolling along them, like after that, you probably don't bother. So like, yeah, if you guys can get them in that realm, like I can totally see how that could be pretty transformational. Yeah, absolutely. I remember we, we worked with a local business around here. It's kind of one or two staff, premium coffee. Um, Liam Liam loves his coffee. We, we're on their like monthly coffee subscription now. But he was like appearing really do- down low in search. And um, I remember just getting an email. He was like, I'm at the top. I'm at the top. I'm finally at the top page. And we were like, yes, this is what we do. Um, and we got, we achieved a 37% conversion up there. But the, I think the interesting thing behind it is the psychology behind buying. So when we were looking at his product images, he's, he just used his iPhone camera for the first set. And they weren't, they weren't bad because I mean, smartphones nowadays, uh, their cameras aren't terrible. But just by, I mean, coffee comes either in a vacuum form bag or it comes in a box. You never actually see the beans, i.e. the thing that you're consuming. And just by you sort of instructing the AI to sort of bring those beans into the fore and generating like five, ten more images of that, that's that's just so powerful to a consumer. I think I think it's about sort of tapping into that psychology and just being like, oh, yeah, I can, I can smell it, I can see it, I can taste it. When you're looking at an image, that's so important. Like You can't smell a box of coffee or taste a box of coffee or imagine what that might be like on a Sunday morning. So, yeah, just we've done a lot of research behind it and sort of like the buying behaviours of customers. And, yeah, it's just, it's just great that like we managed to massively improve things for him. Yeah, that's really cool. And then, Liam, the data science consultancy, is there a... Do you guys have like a niche, like is it computer vision on the whole or are you guys happy to tackle just data science problems? We're happy to tackle data science problems. It, usually there's some element of computer vision to the to the puzzle. So we're doing a bit of, we're doing some work at the minute with um, Sorted. We did some press about it recently. Uh, they're, they're a software platform that sit between the retailers and the, and the couriers, sort of optimize that allocation and delivery experience. Now, obviously, that problem doesn't have images in it, but there are images that the every driver takes of your parcel when it arrives, for example. So, so what I would say is that we we've got a lot of expertise in the vision space, which usually opens the door for a conversation. But there's there's a deeper, usually that's part of a of a deeper optimization problem. So that that's probably the first space that we look at. But I, I still get that. We still get probably at least half of half of the business we do is people coming to us in a very similar way to when I was applying for sort of head of data science roles back in the day of we need a data science team. It's our first one. Or actually, maybe it's our second one because um, it didn't go very well the first time. Can you help us out? Um, and that's usually a six or 12 months of getting them, getting them ready, delivering some value and helping them put the right people in place. And then nine times out of 10, we stick around for a bit because they want to keep using us as advisors or when they're doing kickoffs of projects, get us involved. So we built some really great relationships in that space. And some of that stuff has nothing to do with images. It's just a, 
we know we need to add some value here. We maybe have interviewed people or we've cycled through the first set of data science teams over the last couple of years. We know we need to bring someone who sort of delivered this and then myself and the team will get involved in that. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Is images like one of the more like tangible bits of data science? Because quite a lot of it's hard to understand, right? But like when you're talking images, you can kind of show people like why something matters or how they could do it better. Whereas sometimes you're like, you're hoping they just trust you to go build a predictive model and eventually it will come back and do something for them. Whereas images feels a bit more like you can touch it almost. The biggest benefit we have when we use images is when we make proof of concept or we're presenting an idea, it's clear and it's visual. I'll make your logistics distribution system 20% more efficient. It's quite abstract. But look, I can, I can extract this information from this image or I can tell you when there's a picture of a bin. Someone's put a parcel in a bin automatically and it's coming at lost, which is a huge problem. Um, that's very visual, which is great. So it's a real positive. The flip side of it is people are a lot more critical of machines than they are of people. So if what you're doing is replacing a manual task or you're adding something new, you say, listen, we can tell. I keep saying parcels and bins. It's not something we're actually doing, but again, it's quite real. We can tell 95%. If parcels in a bin, we'll figure out 95% of the time. People are like, oh, that's great. But then when you show them the results, it's a lot easier for them to interrogate the errors. So the images really help you on the way in to a project, but you've got to really manage them on the delivery of a project because, like, well, these five are wrong. And I was like, yeah, but there's 100 of them. So it's exactly what we said. So <laughs> you've, people are very, very harsh on machines, my experience has been. I mean, it's a slightly segue. You see a lot, a lot of this with like uh, ChatGPT and artificial general intelligences. With humans, we ask people to specialize in specific job roles, but for some reason, we want a machine to do absolutely everything or it's crap. Like, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> anyway, it's not what we ask. We, you probably have people on, on the podcast, and I know we've been at events and stuff where it's like, here's why you shouldn't hire one data person for all the different data roles. So why is that not true when we're getting machines to do tasks? But anyway, that's my little run to one side. So, um, so yeah, it, it really helps on the way in, which is great for a business, but you have to really manage the delivery of that because it's a lot easier for a non-technical person to interrogate your outputs than it is in a completely predictive space or something that isn't visual. Yeah, that makes sense as well because like, if you get like 80, 85% model accuracy on like a predictive model, you'd, you'd be pretty chuffed with that. And then the end client would be like, that sounds pretty, like that's decent. But like you said, if it's 95% images and they can see all the ones that are wrong, <laughs> like they can pick, you can pick you up on it where they can't really pick you up on like the predictive space yeah. as easily. And this. There's definitely a thing. So internally, what we do is to say, rather than just one, we're 85% accurate. We, we're we also monitoring well, what percentage of really bad mistakes. So what will happen if someone sees, uh, to, to go back to my parcel in a bin example, uh, if someone sees a parcel uh, in a hedge that's quite dark because it's winter, when a human looks at that, they go, oh, I can sort of see why it's got it wrong. Right? They're trying to understand what's happening. So that's just like an error. But if, if there's a parcel that's just on uh, on someone's floor or on the drive, they're like, how can that possibly think it's a bin? Uh, and because that's the algorithm isn't thinking like a human looks at a picture and thinks it's hard for them to. So we, we try and classify when we're doing the audits on the errors to say there's mistakes and that's there are going to be mistakes in any predictive system. But what are the really bad mistakes? Because what happens if even if there's one of them, even if it's less than 1%, they see it and they go, it doesn't work because of this terrible one. 
yeah, you lose trust quickly, right? Like super, especially if you're doing a proof of concept or something where you've like sold them the dream of how good this is going to be and they see that one bad mistake, like it can just totally ruin it. Yeah. And again, it's a it's an explainability thing on the here's why it's made this decision, which is a, a deeper running theme for all sort of the ML side of things. Um, but we try and control for it when we're modeling because it's, I think in images, it's something you need to be more aware of than elsewhere. Cause people are going to, people are going to go, that one looks weird. Why has it made that decision? I don't think, it, I don't trust it. Uh, even though it's got 99 correct. And is computer vision, like, this is a really dumb question, but is computer vision like harder, like a harder piece of data science to do than what a lot of teams will be doing up and down the country in terms of like, I don't know, the predictive spend or like customer churn or something like that. Like is, does vision have way more complexity or is it just different? It's just a bit different. So a lot of it's transferable, right? So if you're, if you're a data scientist at a medium sized construction firm and you're trying to forecast when your machines are going to break or what your revenue is going to be next year, usually you've got to use that business's data and that's your limiting factor in what you're trying to do. But if we go into that same construction firm and say, um, well, actually, we're going to hook into your CCTV and tell you where your forklift trucks are at any given time. I don't have to use the CCTV to tell me what a forklift truck, to, truck is. There's, there's a wider data set to do that. So there's definitely more transferable learning into those networks. So there's, I think there's less of a cold start issue where you're in a business and you have to use their information. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, usually the vast majority of stuff is neural networks, which you sort of need to use, but they're, they're really well suited to sort of image matrices and stuff like that. But yeah, I think, I think that's, to me, that's the core difference when we when we land somewhere that unless it's super niche, there are existing data sets, there are existing algorithms already that, that know this is a table, this is a chair. I don't have to use that business's data to figure that out. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's often the big challenge when, you'll have seen this before, you kick off a data science project or you get asked to, the data's actually not very good or like it's all in different places or the first couple of months is just preparing the data. Whereas yeah, if you've already got a data set to tell you what a forklift is, then it, it just becomes a bit quicker, like you said, that's good. This is only the, this is the second company we've had on. So the first one uh, are in Leeds actually, the data shed who are run by a couple how has that been for you guys? Like, is it easy to leave work at work or do you guys just work all the time? Liam and I are quite strict with our time. Like, I think it's fair to say that we do aim to do a nine till five. I mean, there might be the like odd Sunday afternoon or something that we have to jump on. I think for me personally, it's more that even if you close in your laptop lid at five, like last night we did that, and then we went to the pub because that's our Thursday tradition. You know, you get into the weekend, you want to decompress. But then you get to the pub and you don't talk about non-work related things. Like work, you are constantly, even like, even if it's not necessarily a negative thing, you're just constantly like strategizing, coming up with ideas, thinking about the future, reflecting and reminiscing on the journey to date. So I think in that sense, it it's kind of, always there but I wouldn't change a thing because I've never worked with anybody better than when I work with Liam and when we actually took that break for a year where we both went off to other companies I remember just getting up because we both worked in Manchester and I remember we got on the train at the end of the day and I went 
oh, I just wish I could work with you again. Like, you get me, I get you, we're a great team. Um, and I think that kind of drove the decision to, like, form in the business together quite a lot. So, yeah, it, it, it's there all the time, but it's not necessarily a negative thing. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, we've got, we've got complementary skill sets, but we're very we're strongly aligned in how we sort of think about things, which works. Uh, the biggest thing for me was uh, when we first started, we put two desks side by side in the same room. Yeah. Uh, and, and that doesn't really work. <laughs> you actually sat so next to that person for 24 hours. So just, just being in a different room um, for the sort of day-to-day and breaking out and doing stuff. Uh, on a very practical sense, that was a lot better when we moved those. But two little desks, you know next to a, in the spare room we put them next to each other and it's like well this we, we wake up from the bed we walk into this room and sit down next to each other and then you just constantly i think it's quite a lot isn't it so we yeah. splitting out into separate rooms is practically the best tip i could give anyone i think so we have this weekly decisions queue meeting whereas if something comes if something comes into my inbox or liam's inbox and it's like it's not too urgent it's important but it's not too urgent we just make a list of those things to discuss once a week on a Wednesday afternoon and then sign them off or, you know, process them. But we, we had to do that because when we were sat side by side, I was like, oh, such and such has just emailed. What do you think? And Liam would be like, I'm literally halfway through building something really important here. Please, can you just not distract me with this right now? So, yeah, make, making like or putting all the process in place, like daily director stand-ups, decisions queues, monthly board meetings, stuff like that. I think that's integral to the success of running it as a as a partnership yeah no that makes a lot of sense and i like that i like some of those ideas actually because that's how it would work if you guys weren't a couple like if you were sitting and just like your cto was sitting like building something you wouldn't just tap them on the shoulder to say i've just got this email in so like yes it's setting that up what was it like though going from the two of you where it was like yeah you said um complementary skill sets really aligned it's both of your business so you obviously are going to be mega motivated to then bring in other people, like because how, how big is the team now in total? Oh, it's Liam and I. There's nine of us in total. Sorry, I feel like I should know that off the top of my head. Um, no, it's, it's, it's fine. Quick maths, quick maths, not my strong point. Well, I don't know. I mean, for me, I think I probably struggled with it a little bit more because it wasn't my background, like building and managing teams. Which Liam, it's something Liam's done. You know right since the beginning, really, for you and your career path. I, I think I learned a lot from Liam and looking at your management techniques and sort of trying to emulate them in, into my own team. But even though we've kind of got the two core divisions, um, so we've got the Better Images team, we've got the consultancy team, we also have like a team of like non-technical people like that work in the marketing and sales alongside myself. But I do feel as a team on the whole, they're not neither parties are isolated so I think we all work together really well and we go out for drinks and stuff in the summer and summer parties and we we always have like business updates once a quarter and that's a whole team thing so I feel like it's run pretty smoothly yeah it's always nerve-wracking the first I mean all the different jobs hired dozens of people but when it's your business it's like I'm gonna have to pay this person (laughs) It feels and it feels like you're bringing someone else to something that's very at that stage. And as two of you, it feels like quite a private thing, right? You're just running this together, and that's always a bit nerve wracking. Uh, but then you do it, and it works well, and then you want to keep doing it more and more. So, I mean, the advice I give to small businesses if, is 
provided the money there, you've got the money there and you've got the plan, if the thing that's holding you off is, or what, what would it be like? I think just, just get over that hurdle because it will add value. Um, you'll learn a lot. You won't do everything right. That's, all, that's true of absolutely anything that you do, but especially like in building the team and trying to build that initial culture, you'll have to adapt your startup in the same way you've got to adapt your, your sales strategy because you're trying to find your feet with it. But I, I would I would advise people to just just get started with it because it will it will reap rewards. People need training. You've got to build that into your plans, etc. Uh, but it's been something that we wish we'd done a month or two sooner. Truth be told, I think we we held on uh, until the last possible second. Whereas I think if we're doing that again, we probably would have gone a month or two sooner, and we could see the work coming down the line. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I think I'm right in saying this. Up until at least very recently, you guys were totally self-funded, right? Like it was consultancy money coming in. You guys built it, used that to hire people. That's right, isn't it? Yep. Yep. We still are. We haven't taken on any external investment. That's awesome. Um, it is the big benefit if you can have a kind of consultancy professional services arm to like your business, even in the early days, like because it, it's a revenue generator, right? Like you get money in straight away. Yeah, you're getting money in um, and then essentially we're using a part of that to fund the product development side of things. Um, it wasn't always the plan. I think in the back of our minds when we start the consultancy, it's like naturally you're working with a lot of customers, or hopefully if it's going well, you're going to see common common themes for what they're struggling with, and then you build a product around that, which is where we got to with better images. But yeah, I mean, the, the big benefit is uh, we can be quite nimble, because it's just Hannah and I to make a decision because we don't have any external uh, funding or stakeholders. But yeah, the, the flip side of that is that makes that first hire very, very, <laughs> you've got to be absolutely sure. All right, we've got to spend this money now. It's not It's not like you've got some some VC money or something that you need to spend on to a plan. You're, you're having to make that decision as well. I suppose, especially because you guys are partners as well, like that, although it would be like in a business bank account and stuff, it's almost a little bit like it's your joint account of like, the, like, this salary is this is our money like we could have spent this on a holiday or like some new kit for work or whatever like it's a bit different to it being like yeah like vc money or like a a kind of a large business where the bank account doesn't feel quite as connected is that does that make sense yeah that's very true it makes you really think about it as an investment right so you've got to be like you can usually track especially the consultancy side what works happening and what revenue is being generated, but it makes you really think about, right, if we bring somebody new now, what's the, what's that investment and when's that going to pay off? Because you do see that pot, like it's, it's a second joint bank account that you've got. That yeah. Just, they take a lot of money off you when you take it out, but yeah. Just, yeah, just no, I, uh, no just eat or ASOS orders on it, just like wages <laughs> instead. Just wages, yeah. I, I kind of see it as like a baby. I know this is, Silly, it's just something that kind of came out when I was speaking at an event the other week. Like when you when you have a baby and you take that little thing from a seed and then it grows into a like a human and then it enters the world and you're constantly having to look after that thing and make sure that it's growing and developing and getting stronger and healthier. You're constantly thinking, like probably a bit worried. I mean, I'm not a parent myself other than having the dogs with Liam. But the whole time in the back of your mind you're thinking don't fuck this up <laughs> like gotta make this child grow into a teenager this teenager to be a, it, come into a successful adult and I think sometimes that's how I kind of view the business it's like nurturing this thing that Liam and I have created and making sure that we're giving it the best possible opportunity to grow up and succeed 
And that's just kind of one analogy I use to when I'm thinking about the business. And I suppose that helps when you are doing that hiring thing as well, right? Because you can never, the business would never flourish as well if you had tried just to keep doing everything yourself. Like you just did everything <laughs> sales and marketing. Liam did everything tech. You'd have to turn away clients. You would have to do, have less time on product development. Like if you want to scale, which is fine if people don't want to. I've spoke to some people recently, they're happy just being like, they're, they're one boss, they do as much as they can do, and then that's it, which is cool. But like, if you want to scale, someone else has to get involved at some point. Oh yeah, 100%. Or there'd be no time for Thursday Pub. <laughs> Definitely not. No time for Thursday Pub. It's hard, to, when you're good at something, it's hard to write down what you're doing. Is one of the, especially in the last few months as we've been trying to, systemize things a little bit more like, well okay just write a guide on how to do the consultancy i'm like that's, i don't know <laughs> i just sort of i just wake up and it just sort of happens and um, obviously you can do it but it's that that's a really interesting exercise and again i probably recommend people do that even if they're not even if they're not thinking of scaling or they are that one person business just just try and write down what it is that you're doing because it, it brings a lot of things to light for me that i'm like oh that works, but it only works because I can be a bit. My brain's parallel threading about four clients at a time. I would I wouldn't ask any reasonable person to have to do that. So why do I do that? If that makes sense. Yeah, no, that does make sense because I've found that too. Like I'm trying to write down when I was doing recruitment and now into sales stuff, like why something's going well. Like it's not always that easy to answer. Like it's just like in my head, I'm like, well, just because it works. Like that's not really an answer that are going to help anybody else ever. So yeah, it's a really good exercise and actually quite a hard one. Last couple of points I've got, and you might not, you might not agree with this, Liam, but you might. You've always been very good at spotting like potential or like kind of people that could definitely be good at the job, but on paper maybe aren't right now. Who maybe just need some experience or exposure to something else, and that's been true since like when you were hiring people through me at We Buy Any Car, and then. Decent and other places like has that been like have you did you just get good at that or like do you think it's again just something that came with a bit of experience and you understood that kind of potential and curiosity was probably more important than like a specific degree or something i feel like i just know if someone's good whether i'm interviewing them or a bit event listening to someone talk I just I don't know I, I, don't, I guess one of those things is hard to write down I just sort of I can figure out oh, you're, you're good you're good at this or you're you're struggling here with this bit um, and I think it from, definitely from an interview perspective there's death you've got to do a little bit of core competency on the technical side I never ask people to code in the room, which always feels insane to me. It's not, it's not how we work. <laughs> I don't go, right, you've got this work to do today and I'm going to sit here and watch it. And then once, once they've passed that, it's just about, you see this person doing more or could you see them growing into a, a different role? And I suppose it's always just been something I can just sort of, I just get it when I'm sat with someone. I just, I just know that like, you're good at this or you're going to be good at this or you're going to struggle. Um, sometimes you're wrong. Those instincts aren't 100%, but I do think I win more than I lose. Yeah, and I think spotting potential, and this isn't just for data scientists, but like in any, like, that's why there's such a big business for like spotting potential in football, right? Some people are really good at it. Some people aren't so good at it and they look for the wrong characteristics. I think it's probably something you've just honed quite well. And it's been kind of the same, uh, same 
uh, kind of plan so far at Frame, right? You've hired kind of relatively speaking junior people, but very, very talented and given them like loads of responsibility. So a couple of years in, that person will be way further ahead than maybe if we can use university as an example, the rest of their like degree class. Yeah. And, and the, there are people who just want to go into a role and do a very specific, well-defined role. And those people shouldn't be working at startups. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, you're you're going to get so much exposure at a startup that actually those people that you, that can do more and can grow, that's the best place for them because they're going to experience so much. And then if they do move on, it's going gonna, it's gonna to seem, well, well, actually, I can do my specific role that I'm being asked to do, but I can also do these extra bits and pieces which really set you apart from, from others. But again, that's, that's very person to person. I think some people don't like having to step out of a two-weekly planning cadence and have to go, not day-to-day, things aren't that crazy, but week-to-week things change. Uh, you need to react to them and you need to, to deliver. And that'll mean you having to put a different hat on sometimes. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I mean, we've all got friends that have worked in the same bank since high school and like they're perfectly happy picking their salary up and having a big weekend. Like that's just, that's that's what they want to do. And like you said, those people should not work at a startup because it would just be like, it would be a bit too mental. Um, Hannah, how have you found, like you said, you weren't as used to building or managing teams and it's a little bit harder in your world, like marketing, sales, like business development and stuff. Like it's, it is just harder to interview and bring those people in because a lot of it is a bit more like it's still gut feel, but it's also like most people in sales and marketing can chat. So like it's harder to decide if they're going to be good or not. Yeah, absolutely. I think the definitely the emphasis on like sales and marketing is almost like the cultural values and the sort how they come across and how when they apply, you know, are they just chucking a CV at you or are they put in a bit of an email together. You kind of constantly assess in like telephone manner how they respond on email, how they respond face to face. And when we were hiring for our marketing internship. We only actually had one position open, but the two people that joined the team both came and presented very, very differently, very different ideas. And we we actually ended up taking both of them on um, because they had strengths across across different areas in the business that we needed improving at the time. So one of the things was we just didn't really have a LinkedIn presence. Somebody came in and they were like, oh, this is how I'm going to do it. And then the other person had come from more of a sales background, um, selling SaaS, actually. I think with, and I think this is also true for tech as well. I think getting somebody that's going to be a good cultural fit is the most important thing first, because you can teach people, you know, how to, you know, approach customers and fill in a KPI report or like track their emails or you know, you can teach people how to be a better Python developer or, you know, teach them more of the technical stuff. But if somebody comes into the team and they're just not matching the values and the culture, that's what causes the most hiccups in the in the wider team and the wider business, in my opinion. So I think it's about looking for those people that are going to be personable, that you could trust in front of a client, trust in front of a customer, um, who, you know, are just going to crack on, but at the same time, are, just a good fit if that makes sense so I was I was quite lucky at the time to find those two like we were working with some of the local universities and they've just finished off their degrees now one of them's just finished his master's so yeah it it, it's hard like you say but I think it's about culture first yeah because I think like 
if you guys were hiring like a head of business development or something and they'd only ever worked in some really corporate environment and then they came to meet you and the team like and talk about everything like it just you can just see how it wouldn't work so yeah like sitting down with them and getting getting a feel for the culture and and hiring a bit more on like we said already kind of potential but i suppose like ability just to like be within the rest of the team is probably the most important thing especially the size you guys are at like you can't go hiring the total wrong person and like ruining everything you've built in a small team of 10 like that's that's a dangerous game to play exactly exactly and my last question and it's a very open-ended one but like what's What's the plan for, for Frame on the two sides of the business, like in the next kind of 12, 18 months? Is it is there kind of something in mind or is it keep on growing and keep on just helping more people? Uh, so on the consultancy side, I, th- I think we can be twice as big as we are now on the consultancy side and still be really effective. Because a big part of our the USP on that side is we do think, we get you value quickly and then we're, we're iterating through that relationship. And I think if the team got more than twice as big as it is on the consultancy side, I think you begin to lose some of that edge through the team. So there's definitely just a growth target like that on the consultancy side over the next 12, 18 months. On the better images side, there's a real market out there that the, the internet looks terrible. Like you wouldn't, if you walked into Asda at Easter and there were no Easter eggs out, and it just looked exactly the same all year through. You'd be like, what's what's up? What's happening? But websites are static pretty much through the year. And there are, there are, some, there are, there are not far off being as many um, small and medium-sized e-commerce sites as there are sort of households in the UK. But there are so many of these sort of uh, micro-businesses doing six-figure turnovers with one person. There's a huge market to establish yourselves very closely with two or three of the big e-commerce platforms to say, Upload a decent image and we'll make some better ones and we'll change them every Christmas and we'll change them at Halloween for you automatically. Um, so it's trying to establish uh, the brand presence of that because, again, it's a it's a new segment. People don't know that's an option, but this exists. Uh, and then beginning to show that we're growing those sort of monthly subscribers month on month. Yeah, and it's, it's, I think Liam's saying about monthly subscribers, like, if you can do 50 a month, you can do 100 because the tech is so quick and automated and built in that way. If you can do 100 subscribers a month, you can do 1,000. It doesn't really have any limitations to it. So it's just going to be about pushing that out as best as we can and growing that subscri- subscriber basis. Yeah, that, it makes a lot of sense. So do you think for like a lot of your customers as well, you said like if the supermarket shelves never changed, people would be like, what's going on? There's probably loads of that like using your coffee example, there'll be lots of coffee companies that they've got their image right once and that was two years ago and they've never changed it because like it was all right and it'll just be fine. It's like if they're subscribing to you guys, it can be almost like a, it'll be a regular refresh and review of like everything they've got, right? Absolutely, yeah. We score everything every month. Um, so we have an algorithm, we look hook into your sales data if you if you expose it to us. If not, we'll look at like an industry average. And we're scoring your product images by how well they'll sell. And we refresh that every month for you. So there's lots of just general insights there about what's good and what's bad. We improve the worst stuff, but over time that'll change uh, as the industry sort of changes and people change what happened. So we're, we're constantly hooked in to say, the, this, this needs changing, this product. Uh, it was fine six months ago, but here's what's changed 
That means you need to maybe not change the hero image, but maybe you need to, like I say, the big one is you start to see it on with coffee. There were just pictures on the carousel on some of the bigger coffee websites. Like, we're towns of Chelsea. I don't know. Maybe expose my northerness there. They just got a picture of a, a cafe at the end of the carousel. So you feel like I'm in a cafe. So there's, there are trends in the space and as, as the ability to do these changes more quickly than having to do a photo shoot, um, a photo shoot in a studio, uh, the pace of change of websites will, will increase. And I think that's where we're different. We're not just giving you new images. See you later. We give you new images, list them. We'll learn what was good about them and we'll, in, we'll continually improve from that. I'm going to ask my 15th dumb question of the day. Could you then, like, with all the new kind of... Um, kind of generative AI platforms and stuff. Could could you feasibly hook in better images to like ASOS and suggest which images are doing well to sell their clothes and not need a photo shoot full of expensive photographers and models and stuff, and they would still have a good result from it? Yeah. So one of the things we do is we hook in, we look at the aspects of the photos, and then depending on what your sales data look like, we'll say here's here's what an optimal product is for you here are the worst ones we'll we'll improve what you've got and we'll generate new ones and that's a, a macro insight could be they do that and they realize that this probably isn't true but that the model the model wearing it isn't important that's almost certainly wrong but anyway it's an example <laughs> it's probably very very important the, the the most real example of that i can give is when we we look at in use products so in asos's example someone wearing the clothes or we had like a candle supplier, someone lighting the candle, so you can see the hand. Or we, we work with some pet brands, so a dog in the dog bed. So the subject is more important on the pet side than it is on the human side. So you get a bigger bounce when you put a dog in a dog bed than when you put a person riding a bike. They're both positive, but in different sectors, different things are important. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And again, you're just not going to get that insight on a marketing team of a small kind of a pet food supplier, for example. Like, you're just not going to have that. So, like, that's the whole point, right? Like, you guys can unearth all these little insights at this beginning all the way to, like, huge insights for that 37% uplift, like you said, on the coffee. Like, that's that's pretty uh, it's pretty compelling. But like you said, it's a bit a lot of work to get people to know the, the, the possibilities out there. Yeah, I think they, they feel like to get better images... Uh, not our products, but the actual words to improve their images. They need to have a, a photo shoot, yeah. or something like that, and it's quite expensive. That's just a lot um, of work, right? Like getting it organised, calendars, photographer, and time. model, yeah, time. Yeah. And and for the big retailers, they will still probably want to do that, maybe once a year or every other year. But what? Let's say I just I'm launching a new e-bike that's worth five grand, and I've just missed the cycle for the photo shoot. I want it to be improved in the meantime. And I want it to be seasonally themed. I want when it's Christmas, I want that background setting to have some Christmas scenery to it. So there's there's a space there as well that, that the speed that we can do this and the all we need is access to a website means that you still may want to do a professional photo shoot if you're one of the larger brands to get that highest possible quality. But the speed with which we can improve new products and seasonally change them is 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 the big differentiator. In the big on the big clients on the smaller sites were replacing that service but they were never going to use a studio anyway they're medium-sized website yeah exactly amazing thank you so much for joining it was good to finally 
to finally get you on, Liam, but also to have both of you on to tell the story of, of Frame. It was much more fun and exciting to see what's next. And uh, I'm kind of once we post this, we'll tag all the company accounts and all that stuff in it so people can follow you guys and, and see what's up. But yeah, no, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Fantastic. Yeah, thanks for having us.